The book of Leviticus is the third book of the Bible, and it's set right after the exodus of the Israelites from their slavery, when God brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai and invited Israel into a covenant relationship. Now, they had quickly rebelled and broke that covenant. And God had wanted for his glorious presence to come and live right in the midst of Israel in the form of this tabernacle. But Israel's sin has damaged the relationship. So at the end of the previous book, Exodus, Moses, as Israel's representative, could not even enter God's presence in the tent. The book of Leviticus opens by reminding us of this fundamental problem. It says, the Lord called to Moses from the tent. So the question is, how can Israel, in their sin and selfishness, be reconciled to this holy God? That's what this book is all about, how God is graciously providing a way for sinful, corrupt people to live in his holy presence. Now, let's pause for a second and explore this really important idea that God is holy. It's fundamental to understanding this book. The word holy means simply to be set apart or unique. And in the Bible, God is set apart from all other things because of his unique role as the creator of all, as the author of life itself. And so if God is holy, then the space around God is also holy. It's full of his goodness and his life and purity and justice. So if Israel, who is unjust and sinful, wants to live in God's holy presence, they too need to become holy. Their sin has to be dealt with. Thus, the book of Leviticus. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, For all of you here in the West Auditorium, as well as for those of you who are in the East Auditorium and those who are worshiping with us online, I'm looking forward to getting to God's word with you this morning and being challenged with you by God's word. So we've been making our way through the book of Leviticus, looking at God's instructions to his people. We've been answering this all-important question. What does God require of us? If we are God's people, and the Bible clearly says that for anyone who is a follower of Christ, that they are one of God's people, then how does God want us to live? You see, the words of Leviticus were given by God to the ancient people of Israel, but they also speak to us today. They speak to us just as powerfully because Leviticus reveals God's image, his character, and the way that his people can honor him with their lives. And so we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 19. If you want to turn to Leviticus 19, you'll see the page numbers up there, or it just says Leviticus 19, so you can turn to that. Um, While you're turning to Leviticus 19, let me tell you a quick story. And it's a story about something that happened in Kenya. So back in March of 2012, FCC was sending our very first medical team to Kenya. We were really, really excited, and we had no idea what we were doing, because we'd never done anything like this before. Well, our flights took us through Istanbul, Turkey, which let me tell you, we will never, ever do that again. And this is why. We landed in Istanbul, Turkey, and had no idea where we were going. We didn't know this, but the airport is divided in in, in Istanbul into two terminals, the arrivals terminal and the departures terminal. And we were trapped in the arrivals terminal. We had no idea where we were going. We were wandering around aimlessly because, of course, the signs are in Turkish, not English, And since my Turkish is a little rusty or or non-existent, I had no idea 
what we were supposed to do, where, where we were supposed to go. I remember at one point, I led the entire team. I said, hey guys, I think this is where we need to go. I think this doorway is gonna lead us into a hallway that's gonna take us to the departures terminal. And so I led the entire medical team into the men's restroom. <laughs> so they quickly voted me out as the team leader and uh, everybody went for themselves. No, we, we wandered around. Finally, by the grace of God, we found a doorway that led to the departures terminal. Now, we were, we were late. We were, we were running, hustling to try and get uh, to the gate because we were afraid we were going to be late for our flight. But when we got there, we learned some good news. Our flight was delayed. And so we were far from home. We were looking for something familiar, something reassuring, and we were trapped in Istanbul, Turkey. Well, we finally got on that flight. We finally landed in Kenya like two or three hours later than when we were supposed to, which meant that we landed about 2.30 a.m. So we, we stumbled our way through immigration and customs. And, and the whole time that we're going through customs, I'm thinking in my mind as the team leader, we had no way to tell our mission partners that we were going to be late. And I kept wondering, is there going to be anyone on the other side? Is there going to be anyone there to, to pick us up? And so we got through customs, and kind of the way that the Nairobi airport is laid out is you get through customs, and then there's a little kind of lighted area that, that's open air, and then it's just the parking lot. And so as we're, we're going through customs, we're kind of trying to wait around a little bit, and, you know, we're looking out into the parking lot, no familiar faces, only a couple tired taxi drivers, and I thought, oh, no, are we, are we going to have to sleep here? Like, are, can, can we even sleep in, in the airport? Is, is anybody going to come pick us up? And at the same time, the, uh, the airport staff are saying, you can't stay here. You got to go. You got to go. And so we step out into the dark Nairobi night. And just as we're walking out into the parking lot with my mind and my heart racing, we saw a figure far off in the distance, a distinctive silhouette of an unbuttoned denim shirt blowing in the breeze and a crumpled safari hat on his head. The figure moved towards us with a, a familiar walk. And then we heard the voice and we knew without a doubt it was the man, the myth, the legend, Lynn Kazir. <laughs> I have to tell you that, that, that wardrobe, that, that walk, that voice, Lynn, is, is, an, Lynn is, a, is a very distinct person. He's often imitated, never duplicated. Nobody can be Lynn. And yeah. And, and so the funny thing is, he was in the service uh, last night, and he was wearing what he's wearing in the photo, too. <laughs> now, even if you don't know Lynn Kazir, you know someone who is distinct. Whether it's the way they dress, the way that they walk, uh, the way that they talk. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Today we're going to talk about what it means to be distinct, to, to stand out, to be set apart. What does God require of his people? He requires us to be distinct, to be different than the world around us. And so as a quick preface, uh, today I want to talk to people who would say, I'm committed. I, I'm trying to live for God. I want my life to reflect the fact that I have faith. Now, if you're not one of those people, if, if instead you would say, you know what, I'm just kind of checking things out, I'm, I'm just kind of looking around, I'm not committed, I, I haven't signed on any dotted lines or anything, that's totally great. We're glad to have you, and hopefully today's message will help you 
better decide what you believe, but also how your life can reflect that belief. So here we go. Let's jump into Leviticus chapter 19, and I'm going to begin in verse 1. It says this. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel. And so God is telling Moses, hey, you got to get everybody together, get the entire nation together, because what I'm about to say through you is very, very important. So we're gathering everyone together. And God said to them, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths, for I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or to make metal gods for yourselves, for I am the Lord your God. And so right off the bat, we see that, that God says to them, you don't need to make idols. You see, it was common practice in the nations around Israel to make idols. They would have taken metal or wood or stone or clay or something, and, and, and they would have made a little statue, something that they could worship, or, or they would have gone in the backyard and piled up some rocks or taken a, a pole and stuck it up in the air, and they would have worshiped that. But God is saying, you don't need to worship idols because I am your God. You don't need to worship creation because I, the Lord your God, am the creator. And so right off the bat here, we see that God is setting himself apart from creation. God is set apart. Now let's skip down to verse 9. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Instead, leave them for the poor and the foreigner, for I and the Lord your God. And so we see that God gives specific instructions to his people, even about how they are to reap the harvest, about how they, how they should, should pick the, the fruits and, and vegetables and the grain that they grew. And he tells them, you need to leave margin. You need to leave extra around the outside of your fields. Now, this was significant. I mean, ask any of the farmers in the room, what would leaving a combine with around the outside of all of your fields do to your bottom line? I mean, this was, this was expensive. This was, this was significant. And what's the reason? The reason is to provide food for those in need, to, to feed the hungry. Now, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that these were not the practices of the nations around Israel. They would have made idols. Their, their concept of right and wrong was completely self-serving. They definitely wouldn't have, have shared food with others. They, they didn't care for the poor. They would have reaped as much food as they possibly could. But not so for Israel. In fact, many biblical scholars believe that, that Israel's reputation, the reputation of God's people, actually spread through the entire uh, area of, uh, of, of Near Eastern culture as people knew, hey, if, if, if there's a famine, if, if something bad goes down here, we know that we can go to Israel because there's extra food there. In fact, we see stories in the Bible of situations where people went to Israel, the land of Israel, so that they could get food. God's people were set apart. Well, let's continue in verse 11. It says, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Basically, God's saying, if somebody works for you, give them their money. Don't, don't hold it back. They, they need that so they can go home and, and support their family. 
God says, do not curse the deaf or put a, put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, I am the Lord. Continuing on in verse 15, he says, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. And remember, this language about neighbor, it wasn't just your little neighbor, it was, it was others. God is saying, treat others fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life, for I am the Lord. Now, now we notice here that, that God keeps coming back to this phrase, I am the Lord. And it's because God is the Lord. He is the one who possesses and exercises all power and authority. God, you could say, is, is rightfully the boss. Because he's set apart, because he is creator, he is the Lord. But we also see that God's character warrants these instructions. Because God not only has the authority to tell his people what to do, but the character to model it. God models righteousness. So God isn't just arbitrarily telling you know, his people, hey, this is how you need to act. This is what you need to do. God is saying, act this way because this is who I am. This is who I am. God says, don't lie or deceive or, or take advantage of people or judge unfairly because these actions are not a part of my character. God is purely honest, purely righteous, and he is just. God is saying, follow my example. This is who I am, and so this is who you should be as my people. Now, we also see in uh, this image in our understanding of the word holy. God repeatedly says, he, at the very beginning and then throughout, God says, I am holy. So what does this word holy mean? We, we hear this word, you know, kind of thrown around and used all the time. What, what does holy mean? Well, in the original Hebrew language, the word holy uh, was the word kadosh, which means to be set apart, to be, to be different, to be to be sacred. And so to be holy, as God is holy, means that, that, that they were set apart. They were called to be different. God is set apart from the cosmos. And so if, if, if creation is here, then God is above creation. He is set apart from creation. A, a great word you could use is transcendent. God transcends creation. He is outside of creation. Now, we see throughout, throughout the Bible that God cares about creation, that God cares about us, but God is outside of creation. He is above it. God is holy. He is set apart. Therefore, his people are to be set apart as well, for he is the Lord. And so the bottom line is that, that God's people were to live completely different than the world around them. And we, we've been seeing this throughout the last five weeks as, as we've studied Leviticus, that, that God's people were supposed to be different, that how they lived, how they worshiped, how they interacted with each other, what, what they ate, what they wore, how they did business, how they interacted with their neighbors inside the country, and how they interacted with people from outside the country was all supposed to be different. And let me tell you, if God's people were in, uh, indeed obedient to this life code, to this, these instructions that God gave to them, then they would have looked completely different than the world around them. I mean, near Eastern culture, the, the cultures around God's people, let me tell you, it was, it was vicious. 
It was self-serving. It was violent. It was just a, a terrible, toxic atmosphere. I mean, justice was, was hard to find. Generosity was completely non-existent. In fact, multiple stories or multiple um, nations around God's people, they practiced child sacrifice. The, the sexual practices of the day, they were perverted, they were public, and oftentimes they were predatory. And corruption was everywhere. In fact, in fact, if, if we look a, a little to the, to the east of, of, of God's people and to the land of Babylon, we see that corruption was actually written into their national law. Can you believe that? It was, it was written into law. If we look at the, what's known as the Code of Hammurabi. So Hammurabi was this, this great leader in Babylon. And so he wanted everybody to understand the law. He wanted no excuses. And so he had the entire law, the civic law, impressed upon this huge stone that archaeologists found later. And so as these archaeologists have, have learned the language and translated the Code of Hammurabi, they've actually found concessions for corruption. And so here's just, just one example. One example that, that it actually says in the law that if, if uh, there's a judge that's holding court and there are two parties that come and one of them has more money to offer as a bribe than the other, then the judge should side with the bribe. Has nothing to do with right or wrong, nothing to do with innocence or guilt. It's how can I make the most money? This is written into the law. Corruption was everywhere. And so for the poor, for the defenseless, they were abused. They were exploited. They were trampled upon. And then right in the middle of all of this, right in the midst of all of this stood the people of God. They were different. They were set apart. God's people were set apart. And we see this played out throughout the book of Leviticus. So what is the point of all of this? The point of all of this is to be holy, to be set apart, to be different, to be different. Now, yes, these, these life codes did exist in part for the protection and the blessing of God's people. I mean, God is a loving parent. God knows what's best. And he, he wants what's best for, you could say, his children. Now, if you have ever raised a three- or four-year-old, you know what this is like, right? You want what's best for them. You, you love them. You're a loving parent. But they think you're trying to ruin their life. They think you don't want them to have any fun, right? And so you lovingly... You, you, you lovingly make these rules because you want what's best for them and you want them to stay alive. And so you give them rules like, don't play with the stove. You say, buddy, don't drink mouthwash. That's, that's not going to turn out well for you. You say, it's not wise to run across the road. Stay here. Stay here in our yard. And then you've done your very best as a parent to teach them, to nurture them, to care for them. And then you go outside in the backyard, and what do you find? Your son is using a knife. I don't even know where he got the knife to sharpen the end of a stick. It's like, don't fashion spears and throw them at your twin sisters. This is not a good idea. God is a, he is a loving parent. He wants what's best for us. He wants what's best for his people. But God's call to holiness also had a missional motivation. The nations all around God's people, as we've already seen, were living in darkness. 
So no wonder God repeatedly calls his people to be a light to the nations. God's people were different for a reason. They were different so they could point to him. In fact, as as a result, we see throughout history that, that people who were not ethnically Jewish came to faith in the one true God because of the witness of his people. That as people saw the generosity and, and the compassion of, of, of God's people and, and, and they, they saw these laws that God had given to them, they said, man, this is the real deal. This must be the one true God. And so they left their old religions, they left their old idols, and they came to worship God because of the witness of his people. God and his people had a mission. So let's return to Leviticus 19 and uh, we'll, see, we'll start in verse 17 and see kind of how, how all of this wraps up, how it all comes together. It says this. It says, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And pay attention to, the la- to that last phrase where it says, Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That passage, that, that, that little section in verse 18, really sums up the entire passage. In fact, you could say that it sums up the entire law. All of the instructions that God gave to his people really are summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God is saying, I am establishing myself as the Lord whom you worship. And so because of that, love your neighbor as yourself. This is a summer of everything. In fact, let's fast forward a little bit to about a thousand years or so to the ministry of Jesus. And so we read in Matthew chapter 22 where, and this is in the New Testament, where uh, the Pharisees, the, you could say the experts of the law, they were trying to trick Jesus. They were trying to trap him. They're trying to trip him up, get him to say something that will get him in trouble. And so first of all, can you trick Jesus? No. But they kept trying anyway. So, uh, so they go and they find this guy who's the best and the brightest. He, is, he, he got the best grades at Pharisee school. And so they're like, all right, we're going to send in our best. So this guy, he's coming to Jesus. He's like, all right, hot shot, answer me this. What is the greatest commandment? And without a blink, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the Pharisee was like, all right, I'm out. See ya. Jesus summed up the entire law in those two phrases. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. Love God with every part of your life and love your neighbor as yourself. So this applies not only to the ancient people of Israel, but this applies to us, to us. We as God's people, we as followers of Christ, what does God require of us? What is our code for living? It's simple. Love God with every area of your life. Every drop of your life that you have, love him with it. And love your neighbor as yourself. Because in these two statements, we see two vital relationships that are defined. The first is our relationship with God. We honor and worship and submit to the Lord because he is the Lord. 
And so the first relationship is, is our relationship with God, but then out of that relationship, we enter into a relationship of love and care and compassion with our neighbors, with, with other people. Because God is loving and just and honest and compassionate. Because God is generous and kind and patient and self-control. Because, because God is a refuge and an advocate and a shepherd. Because God is merciful and righteous and gentle and forgiving. Then we as his people are to strive towards these things in our relationships with others. And by doing so, we are set apart. We are, we are holy as we point to our perfect and holy God. And so for both ancient Israel and for us today, God's people were defined by their relationship to him and their relationship to others. And so you could say that this makes us relevant and at the same time, distinct. Let me explain, let me explain what, this, what this means. We are relevant. We are relevant when we are in the world. When we are in proximity to the people around us and, and we share life with them. When we interact with people at work and, and at school and in, in the neighborhood, we are relevant because we are, we are in the world. But at the same time, we are also distinct. Our values, our perspective, our, our lifestyle, our interactions with people are different. We are set apart because of our faith. And so when people ask, why are you different? Why, why are you acting this way? Why, why are you so generous? We respond, it's my faith. My faith in God makes me operate differently. I am a follower of Jesus, and so I live differently. I have a different perspective. But the key is to be relevant and distinct. Because, friends, we all know that we have a propensity towards one or the other. Either we want to be fully relevant, we want to be just like the world around us, we are no different than the world around us, or we want to be so distinct, so set apart, so separate. We, we want to run away from the world and, and insulate ourselves from the world that we lose our relevance. We separate ourselves in distinctiveness so much so that we're no longer relevant. We can't be just one or the other. We can't be just relevant or just, or just distinct. We must be both. We must be both. We can engage fully in the places that God has put us. So instead of being just like the world, or instead of running away from the mess of the world, God says we can do both. We can be relevant and distinct. We can run towards the mess with our distinctive faith. We can take on the challenges of life, the challenges of living and working with people, but do so in a way that is different than the world around us. You know, one of the, the things that we love to say around here is that we can be the tangible touch of Jesus Christ, which means this. We enter into the challenges, the difficulties, the mess of life in this world. We enter into the lives of the people around us, but we do so with the presence of Christ, with the distinctive faith and hope and compassion of Christ. We can be the tangible touch of Jesus Christ in the lives of those around us. And so I want us to take a, a moment here to think about what this would look like in our lives. What, what, what would this look like in your life? How can you live in a way that you and your faith are relevant and yet at the same time distinct? In your family, 
How can, how can you be that person in your family that, that everybody knows that they can come to you for prayer, for, for care, for compassion? And at work, how can you be known not just as a friend to friends, but a, a friend to everyone? How, how can we be known for our kindness? Or, or, or if, if you're a student, how can you live and interact in a way um, at school that, that your teachers and your, your fellow classmates see your faith? And remember, none of this is about us. It's not about us getting the attention. It's not about we get the credit. The God who we represent gets the credit. Because when we love our neighbors and we love God, we point our neighbors to God. I feel like I need like cones for an air traffic control. Or I'm doing the YMCA or something up here, but it works, okay? When we love our neighbors and we love our God, we love the Lord, we are pointing our neighbors to the Lord. And so on social media, in, in, in your neighborhood, how do we interact with people that are not our friends, people who are our enemies? We can do so with distinctive faith. How can we best exhibit our faith? That's the question. And it's different for each of us because God has placed each of us in unique contexts, unique situations to represent him. You know, Jesus told his followers, you are the light of the world. And he compared us to a city on a hill. You know, whenever I, I think about uh, that statement that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 5 where he talks about a city on a hill, I can't help but think about my hometown of Logan, Iowa. Now, probably unless you know me and you've heard me talk about Logan, you've never heard about Logan. There's a reason. Logan is a very small town. In fact, there are weekends where there are more people here at FCC than there are in Logan. I mean, it's, it's a small, small town. The school that I graduated from, our school building had kindergarten through 12th grade in one building. I mean, it's, it's, Logan didn't enter the 20th century. They, they didn't get a stoplight and enter the 20th century until just a couple years ago. And the people in town still don't know how to use it. They're like turning left on red. They're like, what is this thing? There's more accidents caused by the stoplight than there was before. Before we just had barrels so that the, the uh, farmers that drove their tractors through town could move the stop sign out of the way and take up the whole main street and go through. And you know, just, just like a lot of small farm towns, Everyone is related in Logan. Everyone. I mean, I remember multiple occasions where, where my friends would be, would, would be dating. You know, they'd be date, in a dating relationship. And then, you know, after a couple of weeks, some great aunt or somebody steps forward and says, hate to tell you guys, you're cousins. And it's like, oh, no, not again. <laughs> so I, I didn't even try. I, I wasn't going to take any chances with dating my cousin. But if there's, if there's one thing that's special about Logan, it's that Logan is built on the side of a hill. It rises above the countryside around it. And so I, I have great memories of coming home late at night, whether it was from grandma and grandpa's house or somewhere else, and we would be five, six, seven miles away, and we could see the light of that town set against the dark backdrop of the countryside. Those lights were so visible, so clear, so distinct. You know, here's, here's another way we can think about this. Consider darkness. 
Darkness is the absence of light. So if we are darkness in the midst of darkness, if we, are, if we are no different than the world around us, then we're not distinct. We are darkness in the midst of darkness. We are no different and we don't point to anything different. But now consider light. If we all huddle up as Christians and we all group together in the same place, then our light, our distinctiveness, is leaving the places that it would have been relevant. And all of our light is in one place, and unfortunately, it fades into the backdrop of other light. But now consider light in the midst of darkness. Our faith shines the brightest in the midst of darkness. When we are set apart, when we are distinct, the people around us can see the evidence of God's work. Our faith makes a difference. Our faith points people to God. It is when we are set apart from the world around us that our, that our lives reflect God's perfection. Nothing points to God as powerfully as our lives do. So take your light to your family. Be set apart. Be distinct. Take your light to your family, to your school, to your workplace. Let it shine brightly in your neighborhood. You are the light of the world. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for giving us the opportunity, the blessing of being a part of your mission here on earth. Lord, may we reflect you. May we be set apart in the way that we live, in the way that we act, and in the way that we talk. Lord, not for our glory, not for our credit. God, we don't want the attention. We want you to receive the attention. So God, give us the courage. Give us the, the boldness to, to live distinct lives. Lives that will point others to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.